This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 110. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, again, before we get to today's interview, I just wanted to give another quick reminder about our annual investor conference coming up in Las Vegas at Bally's Hotel and Casino. Our conference is called Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020. Uh, We're about six to seven weeks away, and uh, I I couldn't be more excited. So uh, for more information, go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. And if you'd like to register, just click the Register Now button. And uh, if you have any questions, again, please... Feel free to email me. My email again is rcraft at snnwire.com. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Tony Hansen. He is the chief investment officer of EGP Capital. I was actually introduced to Tony via Twitter from a good friend of the podcast, Mark Tobin of of Coffee Microcaps fame. So uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, Tony was actually making a trip to the U.S. from his home in Australia for a mix of business and vacation, and uh, it was actually an itinerary that included uh, attending Charlie Munger's Daily Journal annual meeting. And uh, you know, since the, his firm's inception in 2011, using the ASX 200 Total Return Index as his benchmark, uh, EGP Capital has grown 350.4% versus 209.5% according to the EGP Capital website. You know, and and some of the things that you hear on this on this interview is uh, really Tony started off as an individual investor. He honed his craft, and thanks to some very good, well-informed bets, uh, was able to accumulate enough capital to start EGP Capital. And really, his performance speaks for itself. And uh, like I said, thank you again for tuning in to episode one hundred and ten of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my interview with Tony Hansen. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast. The 2020 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me, maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast, to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit 
planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And with me today, my guest, coming all the way from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Tony Hansen. He is the Chief Investment Officer at EGP Capital. Tony, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So, uh, you know, I have to ask, you know, what, what brings you up to the U.S.? I mean, you're fully Americanized already in your Texas Longhorns jacket. You know, you're, you're ready to rock. Yeah, well, um, it's, it's a combination of, uh, I haven't uh, taken a holiday for a couple of years, so I'm sort of tying in a little bit of, uh, a little bit of holiday making with uh, a handful of uh, company visits and, and seeing some potential investors and a variety of other, other stuff. So it's sort of 30%, 30% work, 70% leisure. <laughs> well, you told me offline that you actually were at the, the Charlie Munger talk yesterday. I mean, I got to ask, how was that? You know, tell us a little about it. it it's excellent. The... Um, I've been told that it's a, a, a more intimate version of the Berkshire meeting, or maybe like the Berkshire meeting was 20 years ago, and I found that to be much much the case. Um, I was saying to someone afterwards yesterday that Charlie's probably a little bit more concise than Warren, so in a shorter meeting he gets through quite a lot of questions, um, So because Warren probably rambles a little bit more or sort of is a little bit more detailed, whereas if Charlie gets a question he doesn't want to answer, he's just pretty abrupt. So. So he got through a lot of material yesterday, and it was a really good, a really good experience. And you're saying in '96, he's sharp as ever, huh? Yeah, very, very sharp. I was, as I said to you offline, we, um, I, I shudder to think what he would have been like as a young man. He, his brain must have been frightening to watch in, in action. Can you imagine 35-year-old Munger it, today? I mean, who knows? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm, 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 you know, he, he always says um, that. You know how his life worked out was a lot of luck, but I, I think that 35-year-old Munger would have been just as successful today as what he as what he was in the what's that 60 years ago in the 1950s. That's, that's for sure. So um, as you said, you're based in Sydney. You know, I, I recently just had Matt Joss on the program as well, and I asked him about you know the fires down there. I mean. I, did it affect you? Is every, how's everything going? I heard there's a little bit more rain, so it's starting to kind of turn. Well, it's um, the flooding started the day we left. Australia is a, a land of uh, of you know, great uh, variation. So, you know, for droughts and flooding rains, and so we had droughts, fires, and rains all in the last 12 months. So at the moment, the uh, the floods are, are more of a problem than the fires. So it's a, it's just the nature of, of our country, unfortunately. Extreme weather, extreme animals. Yeah, the there's a lot of extreme stuff down there. <laughs> That's for sure. So you know, well, again, thank you for joining us today. I, I, I'd like I said, I, I imagine that you know your original thought process was to you know you were coming here just to be on the podcast, but you know I, I digress, and you know I, I really want to dig in now to your background and really what what makes you you to where you got today, you know. So to start off, you know, what, what is your background? You know, how how'd you get to where you're at today? Well, I've got a highly uncommon uh, uh, resume for a, for a fund manager. So straight out of school, I deferred my university studies and took over a family business that was sort of struggling a little bit. Turned that around and, and, and you know, went through a variety of career changes along the way. So I... Um, I sort of sold that business to a, a company from the west coast of Australia that was looking to break into the east coast. I worked for them for a little while. That sort of didn't work out, um, didn't suit me. Then I got into a variety of other other things. I, I worked as a, um, I worked in immigration, so I'm a, uh, a big guy, as you've probably noticed. So I, I, I used to take drug dealers back to their country of origin, and um, and I worked in immigration, um, doing that. So. And then through that time, I started working in the Department of Juvenile Justice, and, and 
and uh, I, was, I worked as a bouncer and a variety of other sort of jobs that relied more on physicality than intellectual um, skills. And along the way, I got into my mid twenties and thought, "This is just crazy." You know, you've probably got a brain that's a little bit a little bit more capable than this, and you shouldn't be using the brawn. And the, obviously, the you know your physical skills will diminish over time, whereas your mental skills, if you keep them sharp, can probably work for a lot longer. So I, I went back and did my degree, became an accountant, a CPA. Started working in uh, infrastructure accounting, so I worked in, uh, you know, for large, yeah, no, no companies that y your American audience will have heard of, but companies like John Holland, um, United Group, um, worked for Sydney Water and uh, our, our major grid companies um, like Endeavour Energy, so working in that sort of environment. Along that way, I, I, because of my background in business, and I was always interested in investing, and so along the way I was building a small portfolio and sort of paying off my house and doing those things that you know, young, young people do. And I really became more and more passionate through time about investing. And then through the GFC, that's when, when you know, things really twigged for me because I'd paid off my house by that time. Um, and the Lehman Brothers um, bankruptcy hit in uh, September of 2008 and so I had an unencumbered house and I said to my wife this is a one, once in a lifetime potentially once or twice in a lifetime opportunity can we um, take a line of credit against the house and allow me to invest and so that's what we did it was only smaller $300,000 line of credit against my against my home and uh, fortunately the Australian banks at the time were very reluctant to lend so it took them about nine weeks to uh, actually provide me the money and all the time all the, all in all the while the market was cratering and getting cheaper and cheaper and I didn't actually have the cash to deploy so by the time I actually got the cash, it was, um, I'm thinking it was probably late November and it took me, um, I was tapped out on that line of credit, say for a $10,000 um, limit that I left. So I'd used 290000 out of that $300,000 line of credit by the, I think it was the 7th or 8th of February 2009. And then the market bottomed almost exactly one month later and uh, 2009 was a year that set my family up financially because um, you know some of those decisions turned out to be pretty good decisions. I, I, I mean, I have to ask, I mean, I have a couple of follow-ups here, you know, it seems like, well, firstly, what, what really got you hooked on investing? You know, you mentioned that, you know, you had a number of brawny type jobs, which I think we'll save that for another podcast. I'm sure there's some great stories there. Yeah, lots of good stories there. <laughs> I was very good at that job, but um, it doesn't pay as well. So yeah, there are, you, your, your earning capacity caps out um, pretty low, and I earned more than most bouncers because, as I say, I was very good at it. But um, yeah, but yeah, your earning capacity certainly tops out very quickly in that profession. For sure. So, so what what was it that got you hooked on investing while you're going through all these different odd jobs and even studying for the CPA? Yep. So I always loved numbers, which is why I always intended to be an accountant. Interestingly, through high school, it sort of always made sense to me. Um, and numbers I always found easy. I was successful at maths um, in school. Um, I immediately stepped into a, a failing business at 18 years of age. And so running business um, sort of was ingrained in me. Uh, it was a family business, so I was involved in it between the ages of 12 and 18 too. Um, so... Um, business was ingrained in me and I, I, I often say you talk about all of those I could go through there's a number of you know the, the career path is more interesting than the, the brief framing that I gave it there but that's a huge part of why I've, I've been a successful investor in my view is because I come at investments from a, a different viewpoint than, than most investors you know a lot of the traditional path to funds management at least in Australia I assume it's pretty much the same here is so that you go to high school go to a good university, interning at an investment bank or at a, you know, a, a broker or a, some, some, someone in the investment industry, junior analyst, 
senior analyst, portfolio right. manager, it's pretty much the same pathway for everyone. So not to criticise my peers, but a lot of those guys have, have pretty much the same worldview and, and see things the same way, whereas I've, I've run a failing business. You know, I've worked in a variety of different industries. I've worked in, you know, a, a number of, um, you know, everything from, um, you know, as I say, in immigration to, to uh, um, the hotel industry to um, juvenile justice. And I've just got a much more broad... Uh, background that I think really gives me a different way to come at problems. So I, I have to ask, I mean, because you took a massive risk. I mean, taking out a loan against your house in, you know, just one of the craziest times in, in, in stock market. What gave you the confidence to, to take out that line of credit? I mean, how long had you been even investing for where you built up that confidence to say, you know what, I feel pretty good about making this bet right now? Well, I mean, we were... It's a high risk, high reward. <laughs> We probably had two hundred thousand dollars invested in the stock market at that stage. So oh, I was okay. more than I was more than doubling my exposure, certainly, or maybe not quite two hundred, maybe a hundred. I was, I was certainly more than doubling my exposure at the time, mm-hmm. and I'd been investing for more than ten years at that time, or about oh, okay. ten years. So I had built what what I. In in hindsight, that question is probably more relevant in hindsight than it was at the time. I, I don't think I was nearly as good an investor as I thought I was 10 years ago. Um, you know, investment, I always say, is one of the best industries in the world because if you're passionate about it and you stick at it, you just get better and better through time. And almost any investor would look back 10 years and say uh, and, and think that they were not nearly as well-rounded an investor 10 years ago as what they are now. And I certainly do feel the same. It, it was probably more of a risk in hindsight than it felt like at the time. But it just felt like a, a generational opportunity, something that I was only likely to see one or two times in my lifetime and, and that it had to be grasped. And, um, you know, as much as we got, you know, there was a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of luck in almost any, any anyone who has some success. The luckiest part about it was how long it took the bank to actually approve the loan because I would have been deploying that capital much earlier. And the t- t- timing and the success that we had in 2009 was largely a factor of, of that eight or nine week period where, where I didn't have access to the capital, you know, we would have, it would have cost me 15% probably of, of the return that I earned in 2009 um, if we'd got the capital, if, if, the, if the bank had, had come to the party real quick. So uh, what gave me the confidence? I'm not sure exactly. It just, it just felt, it was a, that's an instinct part of it. It just felt like it was a once in a lifetime opportunity and it had to be, had to be taken by the bull had to be taken by the horns gotcha and what was the strategy i mean was it you know com- compound on port on companies that you already had in your portfolio or was it to deploy capital on some other opportunities that you saw uh well there was a lot of buying and selling you know it was it was that type of market where you were buying something at four times earnings selling something at six times earnings to buy something at, you know there was it was really when you look at the, the pricing in the market today um, some of the opportunities that came along in 2009 to, in, to investors who are maybe um, you know cut their teeth in the last 10 years they wouldn't believe how good those how good those um, opportunities were um, I bought some things through the GFC that I probably wouldn't customarily own so we own some miners for example which um, I've, I've only ever owned two mining stocks I think in the 10-year history of, of my fund um, we bought a few through that time because you know some miners were being priced like um, like commodities would never be used again. Like it was a real Armageddon feeling. I don't know how how well you might remember it, but um, you know Australia is a heavily commodity focused market, yep. and 
there was a lot of really good, you were buying miners for less than the cash that they had um, in, in the bank. And so, so the investing that I did then was actually quite different to what I usually do, to be fair. So I, I want to also follow up on your background a little bit more, and because this, is, I think, will lead us to what your, you know, your investing approach and philosophy is today. What would you say are some of the lessons that you took away from the, those first few jobs, you know, taking over a failing family business and, you know, obviously going to work and, and the, the brawny businesses, you know, what, what were some of those, those lessons that really helped you in your philosophy? Well, I mean... I've always been very thrifty. My grandmother, um, um, who, who died two years ago, was the, was the was, well. She was ninety two, so she she went okay. But um, she was the biggest influence on 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 me because, as a young man she, or as a as a kid, she would tell me stories about the um, the Great Depression and um, you know, she was born in the nineteen twenties and sort of living through that and then the Second World War, and then she was from England, moved to Australia and. So her stories of thrift and so on had a real impact on me and, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned and all of those sort of sayings that you hear. And uh, that thrifty, thriftiness that she sort of talked about uh, that was a necessity for her somehow burned its way into me and so I, I, I wasn't earning big money as a, as a young man. A lot of those um, jobs and industries I worked in, I wasn't earning, earning um, large salaries but um, I was always very good at saving and keeping my costs low. And, and that's a big part of the ethos of, of, the, of my current business. And so that's where a lot of that comes from, I think, about, um, you know, uh, rather than there are two sides to becoming wealthy. One is to drive your earnings up and the other one is to drive your cost of living down. And so I was always very, very good at that side of it. And, you know, over time, um, uh, the, the investing um, helps to drive the other side of it. Gotcha. So then let's catch us up to, you know, starting EGP Capital. Um, so 2009... It was a life-changing year, you know. So then, what inspired you to then start a fund a couple of years later? Well, I had sixteen friends and family, as it happened at the time, that, that wanted help with investing. And um, you know, any anyone who's um, you know the investing guy in their family, you know, gets inquiries about well, you know, what looks good, what should I be buying? And it, it got to the point where I couldn't really um, help sixteen people individually sort of manage their their finances and. I looked around at the at the managed funds um, that were available and decided that I didn't much like the way that they were structured. You know, most of them had high performance fees, one and a half or two percent was common back at that time. It's starting to come down now. And and then they would take if you know if they they would take that one and a half percent guaranteed, and then if they happened to outperform, they take they clip another big chunk out of the outperformance mm -hmm. as well. And it just seemed like a really riskless business to me, and it didn't seem very well aligned. And I couldn't find anything that I thought. Um, that if I wasn't a self-directed investor that I would want to invest in myself and I'm not going to encourage my friends and family to, um, to do something that I wouldn't do myself. So I said to them, what about if I created a vehicle? Over time, my wife and I will liquidate our assets and bring them into, um, into that fund. It took about three years for me to do that. We started off with 400,000 of capital originally and 5,000 from 16 um, you know, other partners. So that $480,000 capital in... Um, Early in 2010, or yeah, it was in 2010, um, was was the start of that. So we're, we're 10 years we've been going now, and from that time it built over the course of four or five years. I started writing a blog um, because a, a number of those uh, you know original investors didn't have any grounding in investing, and so I, I wrote a, a, a blog um, every Friday night. I would publish a blog that sort of talked about what we were doing and why, mm -hmm. and 
over time that blog developed a following and then um, other people asked me to manage some of their money and the fund grew from that $480,000 to about $15 million over the course of five or six years. And then I became associated with, um, or someone through uh, Mark Tobin, who I think you know, um, mm -hmm. introduced me to a fellow named Chris Cuff, who used to be the um, CEO of Colonial First State, which was the largest fund manager in Australia. He's retired from that job now, but he runs a, a number of charitable portfolios. And so Mark introduced me to him. I asked him if I could manage some money and, and I rebate even the performance fee. So he was getting management fee free plus the rebated performance fee. And um, I asked him if I could do that for him. And then that way I knew he'd be getting my newsletters every month and he'd be mm -hmm. aware of me. After a couple of years of doing that, um, I pestered him constantly saying, yeah, my fund, you know, obviously we're doing pretty well and we should be managing more money than we are. And eventually he um, introduced me to, um, you know, he's a bit better connected than I am in the industry and um, that's where our fund grew from 15 to 50 million more or less overnight when he sort of started telling his um, associates about the fund. Wow. By the way, we got to give Mark a little credit here. He actually, the whole reason we even were able to, to organize this is uh, he, he recommended we connect on Twitter. So uh, thank you, Mark, and thank you, Twitter. Uh, full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I also have to ask, you know, before we, again, before we get into philosophy and, and your, your criteria, I mean, did you ever imagine that investing and running a fund would end up being your full-time job? I always hoped that it would. When I started the fund, it was always with a view to um, to it um, turning into uh, what it did. But you know, when I was when I was um, tossing drunks out of pubs in um, you know in say <laughs> two thousand and whatever five or something like that, two thousand four, um, it, it didn't really occur to me at that point in time. When I when I established EGP, I did um, I did have a view that, um, and it was probably. A lot of hubris at the time to think that, but but that if I could be as successful as I thought I could, I always sort of hoped that if I could compound capital at 15% per annum, that I could double everyone's money every every five years, and over time that would become, you know, even with a s small starting base, that over time we could build a real business, um, and and then I guess the speed it it feels slow now, the speed at which we got to where my fund is closed now so this is not a um, not an advertisement um, opportunity my, I've closed my fund at, at um, 90 million dollars just because I think that that's a level of capital where I can still stay in the micro cap end of the market which I enjoy and earn the type of returns that I that I can earn without sort of um, you know, slowing down the rate of the rate of return mm -hmm. I guess I always thought that we could get there but um, the way that it just it, it worked um, is is yeah, probably surprising in hindsight. So did you always stay in small microcaps? Was, was that kind of the asset class that you always looked at as, you know, high risk, high reward? You know, this is where I can really build the wealth that I'm looking to build? Well, my, my fund's mandate is actually very broad. So I can buy anything from the largest to the smallest stock. We can actually, um, we can actually go um, international as well. So we are primarily Australian focused. And part of the reason why I've kept, I, I, I think... I think that I think much longer term than most investors. So I'm sort of thinking about 20 or 30 years time and I'm thinking about if I compound the, the assets that we've got at, a, at the rate that I think that I can, I'm thinking about how large that pool of assets will be in 10 or 20 years time. So with a view to that, I kept the mandate of my fund very open. So I didn't want to restrict myself on size. Although I enjoy the micro cap end of the market, I didn't want to um, completely restrict myself to that. And Although I find the Australian market satisfies most of my 
um, opportunities at the moment. I didn't want to stop myself from going abroad as the pool of assets got bigger. So our mandate is very broad. Anyone who has read my monthly newsletter will know we, we also um, bought a very small, uh, we bought 12% of an unlisted business. So we do, some un, we do some unusual stuff as well. So it's not pure listed. I really run my fund, I always say to my investors, like a family office. It's like I run the fund exactly the way I would if it was only my money in the fund mm -hmm. uh, with a little bit of consideration for the fact that I've got about 80-some million of external assets, so I do have to think about liquidity. But broadly, I try and do what I would do if it was just my money in the fund. Gotcha. So, you know, now we're getting to the investment approach question, you know, but I, I wanted to preface it that, you know, the, the fund has really done very well since inception 2011, you know, using the ASX 200 total return index as your benchmark, um, EGP capital has grown 350.4% uh, versus the 209.5% according to your website. So here we go. Let's get it. What, what is your investing approach and how have you been able to be so successful? So mostly I would describe myself as um, a small cap value investor or a micro cap value investor. I look for, um, you know, and, and value investing is one of those things that a lot of people get, you know, have, have different ideas about what that is. You know, to a lot of people that means buying a low PE. I don't think that that's the case. Um, as Charlie Munger said at the, at the um, DJ Co meeting yesterday, value investing is buying something for less than what it's worth and it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a low um, price compared to the broader market. If you're buying something that's going to grow faster than the broader market, you can pay a slightly higher price than the market or you can pay the market price for that and it's still a value investment. So, But broadly, I, would consider, I, I, you know, I always break the portfolio into three buckets. I have what I would consider to be a traditional value investing, which is low-priced earnings type businesses that are, um, you know, that are likely to grow at faster than their multiple implies. Um, over, and, and I say I break it into three buckets. There's no guarantee that one third of the portfolio is in each of these three buckets at any point in time. It's a lot to do with opportunity set. I have a bucket of um, what I would call high quality businesses, um, which we don't own a lot of at the moment because of the price of high quality businesses. But occasionally, um, you'll get the opportunity to buy a very good business at a price that doesn't. So it may be an above market multiple but that business is such a good business that I'm happy to buy that. And then in the third bucket is things, um, special situations, I guess you would call it, where you might have a, a, a hidden asset um, on the balance sheet or something that's not obvious that requires some work. And uh, we, we can be, I wouldn't describe us as an activist investor because I, I don't like to do that too often, but we can be, part of the reason we like to play in the small end of the market is because I, I, will, I will often, to the extent that I can, help um, our, our um, management to execute on a plan. You know, I've got a reasonable network now, so I can help to introduce potential investors and partners. And and if I find an asset that I think's undervalued on the on the balance sheet, I'll often tr help, you know, try and realise that value. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier in the interview, and you also say this on your site, is that your typical holding period for a lot of the stocks in your portfolio is an average of ten years. You know, was this a conscious decision, or is this more? that these are the companies that you're looking for, hence I want to hold it for that long as opposed to something else? Well, mostly, you know, Charlie Munger calls it sit on your ass investing, and I, I very much am a fan of that. So if you can find a really good company that's at a fair price and it never gets to the point where it's above the intrinsic valuation, um, the pro stock price is trading it above that, I'm very happy to hold a good business like that. Part of the way that we get that... Uh, 
um, that long holding period. So it's called the concentrated value fund, my fund. And so our top 15 investments probably have on average 75% of our funds invested in. We have this long tail and that's where most of the actual portfolio turnover happens. So actually in our top, I should say as well, I should preface that by saying when I talk about um, portfolio turnover, I'm only talking about the things that I've consciously sold. So we actually do turn over more. We've turned over about 25% of our portfolio this year through a number of large, a large holdings getting taken over. When I talk about turnover, I'm talking about the things that I decide to sell out of the portfolio. So that's the weighted. We, we've averaged over the last 10 years, 12.5% per annum of our portfolio gets sold consciously on market. So I'm not talking about takeovers. I exclude those because that wasn't something that was out of my control. So yeah, we we've, we actually average an eight or nine year holding period, and our largest our largest investment has been my largest investment since I discovered it in two thousand and eight in the GFC, and it's been our largest investment ever since. And I've never sold a single share of that of that stock. So yeah, we, that's been our largest investment for twelve years, and I fully expect it to be in the portfolio in ten years time. Okay. So then, what what are what's some of the the criteria that you look for in a potential new investment? Uh you know, a lot of people say that I'm, I'm focused on the technology sector or I, you know, I, look, I look at utilities or whatever the case may be. I'm, I'm a generalist. I'll go anywhere. All, I, all I'm looking for in any situation is that I can be persuaded that I'm buying more than I'm, than I'm paying for. If I'm, if I'm, you know, it's the, it's the old saying of getting, getting a dollar for buying a dollar for 50 cents. As I said about the three buckets earlier, that the way that that um, discount comes could be different in nature but all I'm looking for is that I feel like I'm getting more than I'm paying for I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm 100% focused on buying something for less than what it's worth and you know mostly my, my tendency is to avoid paying very high multiples so I, I would you know I'm not a growth investor in that way we rarely own really growthy businesses um, so Purely because it's much harder. If you buy something at 50 or 60 or 80 times earnings, you, know, you have to be very certain about the about the future growth profile of that business. Or if you buy something that's not actually making any earnings yet, that's sort of you know, might be making revenue but isn't yet profitable. You know, those businesses are very very hard to model a future. And so you know, anything that we do own ends up in the tail of the portfolio. Whereas the vast majority of what we own very large positions in, in the in the top 15 sort of positions, they, they tend to be cash flow businesses. Um, you know, I'm looking for something that really spits out nice regular cash. Often our, our, the Australian market pays a very high dividend. Our portfolio probably has a slightly above market dividend, which is unusual in the microcap sector. So we, we look for companies that will return capital to us as well. So then, so then on your investing process side, I mean, it, I, Tell me a little bit how you go about, let's say you find something that you're interested in, what's then the process of going in and starting to build a position in that in that company? Well, that's, that's changed over time. Obviously, we're managing a lot more money now than we were five or ten years ago, certainly a lot more than ten years ago and quite a bit more than five years ago. So now, if I'm buying something that I think is going to be a top 15 or 20 holding, and, and often we're buying smallish microcap stocks, one of the things... When, when it comes time to buy, and I've already done the research at this point, if I can't put my foot on a 1% position um, via a, a block trade or some sort of, you know, a lot of these stocks are very hard to buy on market, so one of the first things that you want to do is actually put your foot on a deep of the business, and then we'll start to accumulate aftermarket. But, you know, the, the process, I, I would say on average, 
we've probably followed a company for at least two years before we buy. I'm very slow moving. Actually, a lot of the CEOs and so on of the businesses that I talk to, they find it quite frustrating because they can see that we understand their business and that we that we can appreciate the value in their business. But part of that's um, that eight-year holding period is is in order to be able to hold for that long, you have to be very certain on the way in um, about the about the decisions you're making and, and part of that is just taking a long time and making sure that you're right before you make that commitment mm-hmm. so uh, and, and that's you know I would say we probably know most of the companies that we end up buying for a couple of years before we actually mm-hmm. commit so I'm a, a long courting process I was going to say you know at, at, especially if you're playing the small micro cap arena management is, is so key you know Absolutely. so I mean for you you know what, what do you tend to look for then in, in management to make sure that okay I think they're a good steward of capital, good capital allocator. It, it varies from business to business depending on the type of business. Most of our, in our top 10 uh, portfolio holdings, I would suggest that the average founder and insider and director management holdings in that group would probably exceed 50%. Mm-hmm. So it's not uncommon, and, and in a lot of microcaps you will get this. You have large founder managers. Um, but a secondary criteria to that, and part of the reason why we tend to move pretty slowly, is you want to see how that management behaves. Um, if you get, if you get, um, if you become a minority shareholder in a in a majority owned situation, and then and then they don't behave well, um, as much as the business might be good, you know, they might pay themselves too much. It could be bonuses, equity issuances, and these sorts of things that right. dilute your the return that um, sticks to the ribs of the investor. So I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, you, it's all well and good for there to be a big insider ownership, but you want to see how those people behave. And as long as their behaviour um, is good over time, that, you know, that could be div- paying dividends, not paying themselves too much and a variety of those type of things. But that, that's that's a real common common um, feature of our larger mm-hmm. holdings. So I, 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 as I said earlier, you know, we had Matt Joss on a, a little, a couple of days ago. And one question I asked him that I'd love to get your opinion on as well is what would you say is some of the big structural differences or just differences in general between looking at Australian small microcap ecosystem versus North American microcap ecosystem? I would say the biggest difference, I haven't seen Matt's interview, so I don't know if he's going to agree with this, but the biggest difference is that probably 70% of our smaller microcaps tend to be... um, um, exploration mining companies so which which sort of makes the Australian market much easier in many ways because um, really there are there are about 2300 companies listed in Australia and if you're not going to look at the uh, exploration and mining space you can probably rip 1700 out of that 2200 so you're down to sort of 500 companies if you're going to take out anything that's um, the, the biggest companies you know if you're going to look at micro caps you're probably going to pull another hundred out of that at least so there might be three or four hundred realistically that you narrow your universe down to which you know I think that that's what, the one advantage you've got in the US market as a it's an advantage and a disadvantage I, 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 I suppose because yeah. you end up with this huge universe of potential uh, stocks to look at so in some ways it makes it simpler but you know so really it's a it's a, it's a smaller market and you know Australia has Actually, it has a pretty good technology sector. We've had a few um, successes. Uh, technology is a good business because if, if, if something succeeds um, globally, um, it doesn't really matter where it, where it's domiciled. If, if it's a good uh, tech business, then it can succeed anywhere. So, gotcha. Yeah. So, so 
as a follow-up to your investing philosophy and your approach, how, I mean, starting off as a self-directed investor, you know, having a great year, 20, 2009, starting the fund then in 2011, now you have about 90 million assets under management. You know, what would you, how would you say your investing approach has changed from that self-directed kind of doing your own thing to now, you know, you have all these assets under management? Well, it certainly does make it harder to uh, move around in the market when you, especially at the end that I that I play in. So a lot of our our um, median market cap in our portfolio is is about eighty five or eighty eight million. Um, I I tend to like to put at least two percent um, of our of our fund to work in any idea, and um, you know our larger holdings have ten percent of the fund in them. So. You know, putting um, eight or nine million dollars to work in a micro cap can be very hard. So some of our larger holdings are actually a bit bigger than that. But but um, so the the biggest difference is is how hard it is to move around. So you need to develop relationships with brokers that I you know when you when you when you're I would say this to your retail investor group they don't realise what a huge advantage they have of being able to move in and out. Um, in small, in a small way, it's it's a much bigger advantage than you realise it is. I didn't I didn't think about it that much in two thousand and yeah, well, in the early two thousands when I was I was you can you can sort of you, know, you can own a ten or twenty or thirty thousand dollar position, be in and out um, in a heartbeat, and um, that is a everyone says that institutions have um, better information and, and certain advantages, access to management, but there are, uh, I think that it's more than outweighed as for a good retail investor is the ability to move around. Um, Unimpeded by size, that's the biggest, the, the, the biggest, um, I guess, change in the business. Mm-hmm. Mm. It, it actually kind of ties in. I would assume, you know, because my next question is going to be, what would you find to be the most difficult part of your job? And I'm, I'm already going to chalk that answer right in there as well to that too. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is. You know, one of one of the other things we. My, my fund is a retail fund, so um, because we started with friends and family, it's it's unusual. Um, you know, a lot of funds, um, decent-sized funds, tend to be um, focused at institutional and, and what's in in Australia called the wholesale investor, so mm-hmm. lar- larger investors. So we've got 350 investors, um, I think, or 330 investors it might be in, in my fund, so we actually have quite a, a big investor base uh, as a consequence of the way that my fund was built. Um, so I probably... Um, for the average $90 million fund, I probably have more contact uh, with, with a broader investor base. Not that that's a difficulty, it's, um, you know, I, I quite, we have a lot of very smart self-directed investors inside my fund and because I'm a, I'm a one-man operation effectively, I actually get a lot of inbound ideas from a, um, from my investor group which is, which is very useful. I probably get a, an idea or two a week um, uh, and like most inbound ideas, 80% of them very quickly go into the too hard basket, but um, you know, occasionally you do. You, I can mine that um, that vein for for, for uh, value. Nice. So, uh, as a quick as a quick follow up to to, and you you mentioned this earlier in the fund construction, but you know, I wanted to kind of harp on this because I think it's a it's an interesting difference between your fund and maybe some other funds that are out there. Is that you know you don't take a management fee; it's just performance based. Yeah, I have some. Um, you know, some unusual opinions in this regard, and they have mod- They have, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was saying this to someone yesterday. I'm not as dogmatic as I used to be about this idea. There are investors out there who are talented enough that they are worth paying a fee to. Um, you know, I used to believe that um, all the way through my career, I would always structure my base salary as low as possible and my bonuses as high as possible. I've always been someone who backs himself, um, and 
So it's always been my inclination to do that. And I've always thought that the, the nature of fund management is that having management fees encourages the wrong behaviour in the fund manager is that they're trying to grow their pool of assets. Um, they'll tend to grow their pool of assets larger than their um, potentially their uh, strategy might warrant because if you're getting a one or a one and a half or a two percent fee the larger that pool of assets is the bigger your guaranteed income is but if you if you depending on what you're doing strategy wise if your asset base gets large enough you actually will impede your ability to earn a, uh, an appropriate return so um, you know my own thrifty nature is a big driver of, of why I think zero management fee is philosophically right mm -hmm. but the other part is is that it um, it makes, it aligns what the investor wants with what the fund manager wants. And so I've restricted the size of my fund relatively small, not because if I doubled my assets um, over the next year, I could probably earn just the same level of, re of return as what I do now. I don't think it would seriously impede me. But I'm thinking five or ten years out um, about compounding. And I want to make sure that, you know, this fund is my personal track record as an investor. And it matters to me to have a good to have a good track record and and um, you know the, the any money that I might earn out of it is, is sort of a side effect and that's one of the things that I think that fund management should trend towards is that people who manage money actually shouldn't really need the money that they earn out of it they should be doing it because they're passionate about business and fund management uh, the, the any fees that come out of it should be more of a side effect than a, than a primary driver Amen. <laughs> so I, I also really wanted to follow up on another thing you said earlier when it came to, you know, the Australian markets and how, you know, you're, and I'm not saying you do this specifically, but that, you know, you're, especially if you cut out all the junior miners and, you know, and you're really looking at more or less, I think you said, what, 500 names? Something, what, for, something like that. Yeah. So, you know, for you, because you have so much access to all to you know, you have a big network and you get new ideas kind of thrown at you every day. I mean, has this also not forced you, but caused you maybe to also look abroad to North America and, and you know, other parts of the world for companies to bring into the portfolio? We have of late bought our first North American stock. So as I said, we're, our, our fund is unconstrained in its mandate. So right. I, can, I can go anywhere and do almost anything within certain limits. So obviously I have to put some, some framework around that. Right. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that, to be fair, I don't think our current size, even if we doubled or, or tripled our funds, we wouldn't need to go abroad. Australia is a, there's about a two, $2.4 trillion equity market there. I'm running $90 million. It's, uh, you know, if I can't find $90 million worth of ideas in Australia, I'm probably not trying hard enough. But it is nice just to have that option there because mm -hmm. you just never know what's going to happen occasionally. Occasionally, individual markets go into their own manias, and if that happens, and, and, and there gets to be a situation where there's nothing really attractive to buy, and I've got cash, and I don't, I don't want to be constrained. So I, that's why I've left open um, international markets, and um, I'm sure at some stage, once the pool of assets gets to a certain size, it will we'll be quite active internationally. Mm -hmm. I, I should imagine. Gotcha. So this is my, my favorite question to ask everybody that I have come on here. So uh, what would you say is an investing experience that really impacted you the most in your career? You know, we, we already talked about the on the good side, you know. <laughs> so perhaps maybe there was one failed investment that you're like, oh, I've learned a lot from that one. I put a lot of time and effort into this and dang. <laughs> it's happened a couple of times to me, almost always in commodity businesses, is that you learn about... Um, 
you think about risks, there was a, an investment that I had. It was one of the rare mining investment. Um, it was in, in the fund, actually, so it was certainly, I'm just trying to think when it was, maybe in about 2013. We owned um, a business called uh, Mount Gibson Iron Ore, which has a, um, an asset called Kulan Island off the coast of Western Australia. One of the richest iron ore deposits in the world. It sits, um, but but it's it's on an island, and so it's got its own port, its own access. It's mining some of the richest, highest iron um, around, and it's sh shipping it a few meters away at their port. So it's just a beautiful asset, really good cash flow. I remember sitting and explaining to one of my um, you know, one of my closest um, investor colleagues who runs a little fund. You know, there's the only thing that can go wrong with this because they've mined so deeply into the into the um, into the body of the island, there's a seawall um, that um, protects the the, um, the mine from flooding. I remember saying to him, the only thing that can really go wrong with this, you, you were paying at the time around the cash holdings of the company, they were earning really quite impressive earnings, it was trading at a low earnings multiple. One thing that can go wrong is if they have a hurricane or a, a cyclone, as we, we have, and, and the seawall breaks and the mine floods, it's just there's this one piece of tail risk. And that happened um, probably about oh six gosh. weeks after I explained it. It was a, a relatively oh small position, and this is why whenever I um, take a commodity. And the, so and a more recent version of that, um, in what I didn't consider to um, be the same type of risk, is that we, we own a, um, a timber plantation asset that's on Kangaroo Island, and 95% um, of that has been fire-affected um, in the recent uh, oh bushfires that we've had in Australia. Um, so that you know, these are you sit and everything that you do as an investor is about weighing probabilities. You know, there's a thirty percent chance of this. The thirty, you, know, you sit and weigh it all out, and then you put a price on the outcome if that happens, and a price on the outcome if that happens. And so you, you weigh these probabilities. And you know, I remember thinking this when when um, uh, you know in recent situations like in Brexit and when Trump got elected, there there, there was. You know, there was a 92% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to be your president, I think, from, from most. And, and so people say, well, you know, these people are idiots, they got it wrong. But there was an 8% chance that that didn't happen, and that happened. And so occasionally those, those 5 or 8 or 10 or 20% chances, they, 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 they happen. They happen. <laughs> That's how probability yeah. works. And so when you talk about tail risks, occasionally you do get the tail happens. And uh, it, it's happened a couple of times to us, and you just got to remember about position sizing in that situation where that tower risk has a real cost to it um, just to make sure that you size correctly. I was going to say, so how do you then think about it in terms of, so let's say you're looking at a potential investment. Let's say it even has that high probability of being good business, succeeding, growing, compounding over time, but there's that 5% risk factor. You know, how do you go about then that either the position sizing or, or, or really, just, yeah, really, I guess it's just building that position when you have that 5% risk, like what's the, what's the catalyst that then gets you over the hump where you start to see that probability, well, that 5% go down? Well, it's, it's not that the 5% doesn't, it doesn't go down. It's just that what's the outcome if that happens? If, if, and, and in both situations, well, we're not 100% certain about the um, kangaroo plantation situation, but in the, in, in the, in the Mount Gibson um, iron ore situation, 
there was a big insurance payout. They rebuilt the seawall. And if I'd have held that investment, I actually sold it because the thesis was broken. So that's the thing that you do when you know, you've got a thesis and you say, if, the, if, if this works out, then, then this is how we'll go. And if it doesn't work out, then it's these. I actually would have been better off holding that business as it happened. Um, Iron Ore has performed very, very well. Subsequently, they got a large insurance payout. There was a uh, LNG project not too far away, so in the interim they were getting income because they were being used as a landing site for, um, you know, and so they, a relatively decent management team ended up um, making a pretty good fist of that situation. They, they, they repaired the seawall and the mine's active again. In the, in the case of um, kangaroo plantations, they've got a, a substantial insurance um, payment that will be coming to them. The majority of the market cap will come back as cash um, because their timber asset has largely been burned. So the insurer is going to... So basically you're bringing forward a lot of that cash flow, unfortunately, because um, the probably the timber value was underinsured because they didn't yet have a port asset. They were in the process of applying for a port. So the timber value is probably slightly underinsured. But it's just a matter of working out if that 5% event happens, you know, is it... Is it a complete loss of value or will some value be uh, realisable? And in both situations that I just described there, it's, it's, as I say, the second one's harder to tell because it's, it's happening in real time now. But the, in the first one, you actually didn't end up with a terrible investment outcome. You would have earned probably less than the market's returned over, over time. But the actual investment outcome didn't end up too bad. So it's about saying what is the risk if that happens. And you know, the short-term risk was that the stock price of Mount Gibson Iron Ore got hammered. Mm-hmm. But the longer-term risk of a good management who, who took that insurance payout and did all the right things, they found other ways of earning income using the island as a landing and so on, that um, a, good in, a good management can actually um, make, a, make a, a fist out of that. So it's really about deciding what the downside is in that situation. Is it a complete loss of capital or can some value be realised? Gotcha. And just to be clear, so you sold out of the iron ore position, but you're still a holder in the Kangaroo Island timber. Well, I don't have an option, to be fair, because it's suspended <laughs> at the moment. The stock's suspended while they sort of assess what's going oh, on. Wow. So, so what advice would you have then for new investors that are looking to deploy capital in the stock market? Well, my realistic advice is that if you're passionate about learning about um, investing, there's no better application of your time than learning to become a good investor. So, But don't a lot of, and I probably did this myself, a lot of investors when they first start are probably making decisions when they don't really know what they're doing. So my, my real um, advice would, would be to have someone manage your, your money for you while you learn. So if you want to invest in the stock market but you know nothing about it, not not to invest all of your money initially until you actually learn a little bit about what you're doing maybe have some money professionally managed or buy an index fund or, or do whatever you know, whatever strategy you might decide for that. But if you really take the time to learn how to be an investor and, and if you have a you know an, an aptitude for it, you can do very, very well. Um, you know, the the stock market has a tailwind. The Australian and American markets have both averaged a high single digit or maybe as much as ten percent over a reasonably long run. The power of that sort of level of compounding is amazing. People don't think about that, but at 10%, your money doubles every seven and a bit years. Um, you, know, you think about that. If I've got $100,000 worth of assets now, it becomes 200000 in seven years, 400 800 accepting taxes, of course, but that's the rough idea of that. Is it, that, that has a real effect over time. If you can 
beat the market by 5% and get 15%, all of a sudden your doubling comes down to five years. And, you know, the, the power of that over time, I don't think is well enough explained in schools, certainly in Australia. I don't think... If people learned and understood that, I think everyone would want to become an investor because it's just magic, the power of compounding, according to me. So, But the thing I would say is that to make sure that you spend the time to actually know what you're doing because so many retail investors... Um, get caught up in the next hot stock it um, you know, might be whatever it is it could be um, you know, the, the um, tech boom when it happened or the um, pot stock boom when that happened recently or whatever you know might be uh, the lithium there was a big lithium boom in Australia I'm not sure if you mm-hmm. imagine you guys had some lithium stocks here that probably went nuts a few years ago when when this you know this extremely commonplace commodity that no one happened to be mining enough of at the time and people got excited about the value of it but then as soon as you know it's, it's not actually all that hard to find lithium so you know a few mines opened up and all of a sudden there's a huge supply available of it and you know it's just to think rationally uh, about these things you know whenever you see a mania about a given idea as i say it might be the tech boom in the 2000s and late 1990s or you know pot stocks lithium whatever it is just to remember you know, someone will make a lot of money in, in those bitcoins, a good example, you know, of a boom that had no real basis in, in, um, in any sort of uh, fundamental, is to just try and sit back and look at, at that as, as, a, as an, un, as an un, unpassionate observer and sort of think about, does this make sense? You know, think about, well, I always think that the, one of the biggest advantages I've got as an investor is that I think 5 and 10 and 15 years out and, and so you can withstand more volatility if you think that way but just knowing what you're doing is, is something that I would say to retail investors you just must think about do I really know what I'm doing when I invest you know, it was something that someone said to me on Twitter the other day when I commented about um, some advice that I gave a, a, a um, relative of mine. They were talking about buying this stock and said someone on a forum says it could get, it's 80 cents, it could be $3. Well, that's not a basis on which to make an informed investment decision. Why will it be $3? If you think about that, you know, if you can actually model out the probabilities of that. And so you, know, you want to know what... Pe- people will spend more time thinking about buying a $1,000 fridge than they will putting ten or $20,000 of their capital to work in, 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 a, in a business, and it's, it's insanity. So with that, where can my audience go and find more information about you and EGP Capital? Oh, well, you can go to my, my website is egpcapital.com.au and um, you can sign up for my monthly newsletter there if you're into that sort of thing, uh, if you want to find out about, you know, I, I usually write a pretty comprehensive um, explanation or um, thesis about one of our stocks at least every couple of months. And for your, um, for your North American, um, in, uh, which I imagine most of your audience is, I think we'll be writing about, if not this month, then certainly next month, about our, our one um, North American holding. So it may be of interest to your, to your uh, listeners. And Tony, real quick, for, for full disclosure, do you own any shares in uh, Kangaroo Island, which you had mentioned, or uh, DJ Co? Uh, no, I don't, own, uh, I don't own the Daily Journal company. I was there as a, as a visitor. We do own, and, and it's disclosed in my monthly newsletter, as our, about our fifth largest holding, Kangaroo Plantations, we do own. Uh, as I said, I can't sell it anyway, even if I wanted to at the moment, because <laughs> it's suspended. So, But um, yeah, we do own that. And, um, yeah. and, and where to next? Are we going to Disneyland later today, or is that tomorrow? I'm not going to Disneyland. My uh, my traveling companions went to uh, Universal yesterday. I'm going to Santa Monica Pier for lunch after this. So, um, yeah. 
Uh, well, you know, you picked a great time to be here. The weather's perfect. It and, is good. And with that, Tony, thank you so much for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. And uh, I look forward to our next chat. It'll probably be over Skype. Possibly. But. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you. All right. Nice. Cheers. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Tony, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to Podbean and search Planet Microcap podcast or onto iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where all of our next gets to discuss all things investing. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official Microcap News Source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>